You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. This vampire squid is just super cool, very unique, a lot of adaptations. and What can they teach us? So researchers are just super stoked about the possibilities of this for potentially gene editing and whatnot. Right, what can right. we learn from these guys? How did they evolve to do this? That's probably why they're so damn successful. Many species are in crisis and need your help. That's really where marine scientists are just crying. They're so scared of what's going on with the coral reefs. They're just they're join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Angie. Hello from 15 miles away, Angie. Hello, Chris. Are you there? <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I find I know. This I is know. like take 15. Yeah, and we are trying our first remote session. Yeah, it's actually really exciting. This is the first time that Chris and I are recording the podcast, and we're not in the same room. Nope, nope. And this is kind of a dry run before I I leave the United States, uh, moving to the other side of the earth. Yeah, so please bear with us for technical difficulties. (laughs) Yes, we'll get through this. But we have an amazing, amazing podcast today. Yes. Because we are talking about... The very exciting and unique vampire squid. Absolutely. Just a totally cool species that is just totally unique and uh, crazy. Right. I mean, Chris and I had some difficulties earlier this week just practicing on what uh, programs we were going to use for this recording remotely. And every time we sat down, I was so excited to talk about the vampire squid. And then each time we would push back a couple days. So tonight, or it's my time tonight, we actually get to talk about it. And I have to admit, Chris, this, the research for the vampire squid has probably been my favorite so far. Really? Yeah. It says a lot because I've had a lot of fun uh, learning about some of the different species we've already covered. But this vampire squid is just super cool, very unique, a lot of adaptations and a lot of fun to learn about. Right. I think over the next hour, a lot of people are going to learn about some crazy biology and some very unique physiological structures. And I mean, this is a living fossil. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is an ancient, ancient animal. Yeah. Please stick with us. You'll learn about the color of their blood, how many hearts they have. I mean, uh, some very 
And that's just to scratch at the surface. There's some other very unique unique physiological adaptions that I have in store that I know Chris isn't even aware of. I know, I know. It's it's they're they're really cool. So just to kind of describe what this animal looks like, it's I would tell people to like imagine an octopus and a squid. It's it's a total mix between the two. It really right? is. Even even from an yeah. evolutionary point of view, right? It's kind of the precursor right. to both trad- modern day squid and octopus. Right, right. It's a total like a mix. If they had babies, this is what it would come up with. <laughs> and they, you know, we'll, we'll get into some of the physiology, but they are they vary in color. Typically, red is what you're seeing in popular press and stuff when they discovered the species. But the the deeper they go, they do tend to be black. And to describe them, they kind of have that uh, dome shaped head. Mm-hmm is how I would describe it, kind of like a squid, but then they have the eight arms like an octopus that is like an umbrella. Right, each arm is attached by a web of skin too. Right, so it's like a total umbrella, like you open up an umbrella and that's what it would look like. Crazy, and then they have these two large, I, I call them ears, but the protrusions are mm-hmm. fins that kind of stick off their head. And then they have this really large blue eye. And then under the webbing, they have rows upon rows of teeth and spines, which makes them a little scary looking, you know. But you'll stick with us and you'll find out that those spines are not used for anything scary at all. And it's interesting we talk about these animals being kind of a mix of a squid and an octopus. So, you know, I would ask, what's the difference between the two? So between squid and octopus, there's not a ton of differences, but we really want to focus on the fact that squid has two fins on their head or mantle area. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they also have a stiffer structure in their body, which is not a vertebra because it should be noted that all cephalopods, octopus, squid, and cuttlefish are invertebrates, so no backbones. Mm-hmm. But squid have a pin which acts like a flexible backbone that runs the length of the animal's body and helps stabilize them when they're swimming. And the other big difference between squid and octopus is how they catch their food. Mm -hmm. Squid is going to catch food with their long tentacles. So they have eight arms, but they also have two tentacles typically that trail on its sides. And the tentacles are how they're going to catch food in large chunks. Where the octopus are going to grab their prey and pierce through its the skin or the shell and typically inject a paralyzing venom. Right. I mean, they're amazing. And I know there's some really cool octopus that we should probably cover. Oh yes, Chris. I'm like, I'm like in cephalopod mania right now. It's so, (laughs) it's so funny. I, I was obviously telling my husband all these fun cephalopod facts and he's like, you right. need to go hang out with my buddy, Josh. He's like a cephalopod head. And I'm, and I think right. I, that might be me. Uh, it was, it's just really, they're so yeah. cool. And we're not going to yeah, touch yeah. on all of it today. So you're darn right. We are definitely going to cover some octopus and other families of squid too. Right. There's some really cool ones. There's some really cool ones. Andy. So I, one of the things that I wanted to cover today, because, you know, it was, it was bugging me that I brought it up in a previous pod and I was like, okay, I'm going to finally research this and find it. I still owe people an answer on birds and the bees, which we'll, we'll, we'll leave them hanging for the next pod. We'll, we'll do that one. But this one in the condor episode, I was like, why do we name things the way we do in scientific nomenclature? So I looked it up. I was like, I mean, I kind of remember this from biology class, but it was so long ago, like last it, No, it, it does get foggy. I, I took an invertebrate biology class. I'm sure we talked a lot about squid and octopus, and I don't remember any of it. 
Yeah, and the scientific naming convention and stuff. So, so I looked it up. And the first part's really easy. Whenever naming a new species, you go and find out what their genus is or the way they get classified in a genus, and that's the first part of their name. So for us, homo, homo sapiens, homo is man, humans. So that is our genus. And if we go back in our history, there was homo erectus. And then that was before we got to homo sapiens. And homo erectus went went extinct about 2 million years ago. Now, the second part is where it gets a little funky. And then if you even have subspecies, it gets even funkier. But we'll just keep it simple. We'll just keep it with species. So the scientific naming convention, especially with, with zoology, and this is all governed by the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. I bet those are a lot of fun guys sitting around a room. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I know you and I are dorks, but oh my goodness. Yeah, I would need, we, I would need to take them out for a beer probably to be able to talk with them. <laughs> I can just imagine. Oh my god! Oh, anyways, uh, if, so that who that is who grants and says yes, that's a good name for that species. But the second part is describing the species. It can be an adjective, which means it describes the animal in some way, or a noun. And the whoever discovers it, the scientist or scientists, they can name it. So, Chris, just to interject really quick. Would you name a new species after you or maybe one of your sons? <laughs> yeah. I think I would. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't even know. If I discovered new species, I, I mean, I'm not yeah. that vain of person or what's, I don't know if vain is yeah. the right word, but I, I think I would have to, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It would be, yeah, I think that's where a lot of these names come from. But just to give you an example. The second part of homo and what sapien actually means in Latin is wise. So wise man. So I don't know how true that is because we're even getting smarter. And who knows where we'll be in 100,000 years as a species. In some ways we're getting smarter. In some ways I think we may actually be devolving. Yeah, probably a little (laughs) bit (laughs) going back. Now, let's talk specifically vampire squid. So the first part of their name is the genus is Vampirotuthis. Nice. That's so that's yeah. It's a crazy name. What's even crazier about just vampire squid. This is the only animal left alive from that order. So when we say they're ancient, they are ancient. They're very ancient. They've actually found, correct me if I'm wrong, but they've found vampire squid from a very, very long time ago. And they look Mm -hmm. just the same as they do right now. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a phylogenetic Relic is what they're called. A relic. That's right. Okay. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's crazy. So now the second part of their name. So you have Vampirotuthis. The second part is Infernalis, which means. From hell. Hell. (laughs) Like, seriously. Like, they didn't didn't just stop from, like, they didn't just stop with a vampire name. They're like, vampire from hell. Yeah, it means specifically from hell. Yeah, when you're doing research on these guys, a lot of a lot of the literature out there, I mean, will say vampire squid from hell. <laughs> it keeps repeating yeah. it. And at first I thought it was a typo or just maybe a journalist or somebody, maybe a researcher being funny. But then I realized mm-hmm. that no, infernalis means from hell. Like that's yeah. really the name. Yeah. And it's like you, you know, well, we're going to talk about their behavior and, you know, their diets and stuff, but they're not 
the honey badger. No, they're not you know, bad at all. They're they're kind of cute, <laughs> and they do some really cool, fun things that aren't related to a vampire at all. I think I yeah. think it was just basically because they were so dark, and then their their arm looked like a cape, kind. Of, and and when they and when they moved them and did different behaviors, I'll talk about uh, pineapple posture a little bit later in the podcast, mm-hmm. and that I think made them look extra terrible than they really are or maybe a little more scary right but yeah yeah whoever named this one definitely was a little dramatic did a good job <laughs> yeah but it's, unforg- yes. it's unforgettable it was, I, that's for sure right so i thought it was pretty pretty cool so that's why we name the things uh, the way we do it starts with their genus and then specific to that species it's up to the scientists to kind of describe it now these are cephalopods which angie keeps going off about and it's just really excited and it really just an amazing oh just to interject chris really yeah. quick maybe this scientist that named the vampire squid from hell maybe he did name it after his kids yeah <laughs> maybe, his kid, maybe his kids are super naughty or something okay yeah. <laughs> sorry i'm just trying to figure this out but having fun so the cephalopods like you like angie said squids octopus and the nautilus which is you know if we're going to do a cephalopod again that one's pretty. Oh yeah, yeah, phenomenal. really cool. Yeah. The so the, the vampire squid. What's really cool about it too? Just talking about its habitat real quick. Just lives in extreme deep, very very deep in the oceans, anywhere from two thousand to ten thousand feet deep. They have found these guys. So that's six hundred to three thousand meters. They that's almost two that's miles deep. down. Very deep. It's like midnight yeah, zone. It's. it's very, very much, very much. Did you get that from Octonauts? I did. I specifically had my son. He loves Octonauts, and they have a vampire squid episode, yeah. and I've blown past it and not paid attention, but we watched it together, and they, they do pretty well with it. <laughs> That's where Angie and I did all of our research. For those of you that don't know, and you have little kids that like the ocean and want to learn about the ocean, Octonauts is a cartoon program that's yeah, it's not good. bad. It's good. It, t- it took a little while to grow on me, but now now I like it. Once I realized that they covered vampire squid, and they talked about the midnight zone, the yeah. deep, deep ocean. I, I, I got on board. Yes, they. Uh, it's a good educational program for compared to a lot of the stuff that's out there. But the interesting thing about these, they don't like extreme cold. I mean, they're in extreme deep, and it's cold down there. But it's more of the equatorial region, so temperate tropical oceans is where they live. They're not found, you know, in the Arctic or anything like that. Now, my favorite part, evolution, <laughs> but I'm going to make it quick. Because, again, there's not a lot known as an invertebrate, right? Mm-hmm. And then do you want to tell people the difference between invertebrates and vertebrates? Well, yeah. Basically, invertebrate just means that they don't have a backbone, the bone structure that separates chordata or the basically mammals. Right. Uh, invertebrates are going to be squid and octopus and insects, of course. Mm-hmm. They have an exoskeleton, but they don't have a quote-unquote traditional backbone as humans, cats, dogs, etc. Right. And so how do you find fossils if they don't have backbones and bones and things like that, right? It's a lot harder. But we can. We have found these guys dating back 350 million years ago. A long time Like ago. some of the earliest animals we've, we have found uh, have been some of these cephalopods and earliest ancestors to the vampire squid. And then if you go back to a couple of pods ago when I talked about how we can date animals, I think a lot of it's just the carbon imprints that they leave behind. We've been able to see that uh, in some specimens. Now, what happens with squids, which is cool, is their, their not, it's not their backbone, but it's their internal support structure that's called a gladius. 
So that is internal to them. And it's like chitin. It's like the out, outer layer, you know, of an insect. You know, think of a grasshopper and its outer like shell. exoskeleton. Yeah. You know, crab, lobster, their, their outer shell. Well, in squid, it's inside. So that's kind of their support structure. Now that does fossilize. Cool. So they have found that. And so that's why they can trace some of this back. And they've actually found a gladius in the stomach of a plesiosaur, which is the swimming dinosaur that has like four oh, huge fins. Oh, we love that one. My son neck. loves that one. Yes. Super long mm-hmm. neck. Yeah. So they actually, that dates back about 86 million years ago. They found these in the stomach. That's incredible. Fossilized. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they're ancient. They're ancient. Researching some of this evolution stuff, it's insane. So we talk a lot about mass extinctions, right? I mean, we're in the six. And interesting, two of our interviews so far, they've both have mentioned the six mass extinction. You know, conservationists in the field. Anyways, the most severe one was the Permian mass extinction 250 million years ago. That was the one that almost wiped out all life on Earth. So we almost became like, I don't know, Mar- I don't know if Mars or Venus ever had life on it, but that's like the planet almost became like that after uh, they think a large meteor, which then led to super volcanic activity, just killed off over 95% of all species. So Chris, what was left in that 5%? Yeah. So these guys, <laughs> so it took like five to 10 million years for the earth to rehabilitate, right? Animals to rehabilitate and come back. These cephalopods and mollusks actually survived it. And within a million years, completely rebound. That's incredible. These, the survival mechanisms of these animals is insane. So then it just kind of led to my question of, you know, why do they survive these depths? How do they survive these crushing, crushing depths? Mm -hmm. And, you talk about the midnight zone. What is really interesting about that is also the oxygen minimum zone, right? So I don't know if you came across any of your literature in that. There's not there's not normal amounts of oxygen. No, all. no. Like it's above and below there is, but in this minimum zone, there really isn't. So just to give some numbers, you know, kind of looking this up, that the top layer of the ocean or top layers, it's about four to six milligrams per liter of oxygen okay. roughly and then the bottom layer of the ocean near the uh, the sediment in the bottom actually has a higher oxygen because all the organic matter that drifts down and settles the marine right? snow i believe it's called right yes that's you're my right, word of the you're day right. that like, i learned i love it i, want to, <laughs> I don't know yeah, why i'm like, like that's like a band name marine snow or something <laughs> yeah yeah, so you have that marine so set settling on the bottom, and then that produces some oxygen. But in between, you don't have a lot of oxygen. So they actually think it's like less than one nanogram per liter or something of oxygen. It's just very, very oxygen poor. So there's not a lot of animals that can really survive Except there. Except for really the vampire well. squid. Yay, right. So getting back to the Permian mass extinction, you had this massive wipeout of animals. You had all this sediment drifting into the oceans, poisoning the top layers of the oceans. So the ocean chemistry completely changed. And so you had these vampire squid relatives and mollusks just surviving just fine. You know, even the bottom of the ocean was hell, like the chemistry was hell, but this minimum zone was kind of like, eh, you know, not much change for them. 
So they, they survived in that environment. So it was just crazy. It's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, and isn't it true that the vampire squid is almost like the precursor species, evolutionary speaking, to the modern day octopus family and then squid family? Yeah, I believe so. It, it's kind it's of in- like a, one of the mm-hmm. in-betweens. Mm-hmm. Right. And then being that they're from this oxygen minimum zone, it's just crazy how they discovered them, right? Yes. They're very hard to study, as anybody who is listening can visualize. They're down there in that depleted oxygen jo- zone. Huh. So Monterey Bay Aquarium has been at the forefront of researching these guys. They use remotely operated vehicles, or sometimes you'll see ROVs to get down there in the dark, deep, deep oceans in the Pacific and learn about these guys. So what we know from them living in the wild is basically just from Monterey Bay Aquarium and their studies. Mm -hmm. They have brought some into a captive setting and learned a little bit more about them and, and at the aquarium too. Monterey Bay Aquarium is doing amazing things to keep our oceans healthy and that wildlife that lives in there sustainable. They do really cool programs and have priorities with ocean health, with wildlife, with sustainable fisheries and aquaculture. They're really keyed into trying to figure out the plastic pollution problem in the oceans and, of course, climate change. They utilize research, which is what has given us pretty much all the information we have or a lot, a large chunk of the information we have about vampire squid. And then they're even active in policy and other programs such as seafood watch has also been created and endorsed by Monterey Bay aquarium. And that's a really cool thing for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with seafood watch. It's a cool little pamphlet. And then I think they also have, of course, things online, if not even an application where you can investigate and learn about the fish you're consuming either at, Uh, buying locally from your store or market or at a restaurant, it can give you, Mm -hmm. it can help you make choices on what type of fish is sustainable and what are some seafood that you probably want to stay away from. So no, that's, that's awesome. uh, We carry it in our, I have, I have one in my purse uh, that I carry for when we're out and about and, and, and trying to help make uh, more sustainable seafood choices. No, yeah, that's, you know, like we said, the the oceans. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that today, too. It's just conservation of the oceans. But to have these apps that people can use, you know, and, and one of the things we, we posted on our website uh, just recently was a carbon calculator. Mm-hmm. So you can see how much carbon, as we try to lead carbon neutral lives, this is just another thing we can do and say, hey, you know, are these overfished? Are they endangered? So yeah, if you want to learn more about Seafood Watch and some of the programs that are involved in this, definitely check out uh, MontereyBayAquarium.org. Uh, and of course, they're on Facebook too and whatnot. Hopefully, some of these tools that they provide will come in handy so you can make better choices for the right. oceans. Right. And then, you know, just going back to vampire squid, being that Monterey found, that, discovered them or have been researching them, I should say. Mm-hmm. What have they been finding out? Because there's been some really cool stuff with them, right? Yes. Yeah, so in getting preparing for this podcast, I always ask myself uh, to be to put myself in the listener's shoes and say, why should we care about squid? Mm-hmm. And besides these really cool adaptations that I've had a lot of fun studying and the listeners are going to be learning throughout this hour long podcast, squid are have a lot of adaptations. I think we're just at the tip of the squid arm, let's just say, <laughs> not the tip of the iceberg, but we're just at the tip of learning about cephalopods and what they can do. And 
One reason you should save these guys, and I typically always talk about diversity and how diversity in in different places, be it on land or in the oceans, is very critical to certain ecosystems. But moving beyond that, squid have properties that can actually help cure human diseases and conditions. And we're just starting to learn about some of them. But for instance, for over 100 years, Chris, scientists have used the a giant axon, which is part of a nerve cell, yeah, yeah, from a little squid to help study how our brains work. And we have gleaned so much information from them because they're very similar to us. Squid, although they're invertebrates, and humans, of course, we are vertebrates, probably our last common ancestor was a little flat worm, maybe a few millimeters long. Mm-hmm. But somewhere along the line, cephalopods or squids developed high-resolution camera eyes, as did we, independently. So it's often thrown around or joked or talked about that squid are actually alien life form, but living living in the oceans, they're that different from us, or they diverged from humans that long ago, yet they still have developed these really intense properties to have a great camera eye and a lens that focuses, let alone all these other gnarly adaptations. Mm-hmm. We don't know the full extent of what they can what they can do from a biological or physiological point. And what we do know is really cool. Mm-hmm. There's been talk about potential military applications because of the ability for them to change colors and or bioluminescence, which we'll talk about a little bit more in the podcast, that this could become perhaps an active camouflage for military. And then even more recently, Chris, there's a really cool discovery, and you're going to have to let me dork out here for a moment. And even more recently, researchers out of Stanford have found a really cool discovery in cephalopods, so octopus and, octopus and squid, in that they found that their RNA can edit on the fly. It can change. And so just to back up and give you a little information or a reminder about DNA and RNA, DNA is like the blueprint of your body, or I like to think of it as like the blueprint of your house. And RNA is little instructions to build pieces of that house when you need them or to build, to make proteins that help control your body. So RNA typically in all other animals studied so far, Mm-hmm. When those instructions to build something small in your house, like let's say kitchen cabinet or um, an island. Oh, I wish I had an island in my kitchen. <laughs> when, those, when those instructions from the, from the DNA blueprint, when those small RNA instructions to build your kitchen island are, mm-hmm. are developed, they're not flexible. Yeah, that's yeah. 100% what's going to happen. And that's how diseases occur. Because that in some people are either born with a little screwed up instruction in their kitchen island or through mutation over time, there becomes a little, a little screw up in the RNA or instructions to build your kitchen island. And then they repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And that's what can lead to disease. So what they found with squid and octopus is that those instructions to build your kitchen cabinets or your island or whatever it is, Octopus have the ability to, if there is a mistake in the, in that little instruction, I like to think of it, they have an eraser that can just erase that instruction and fill in the one that actually makes it work. 
Which is crazy because that doesn't it's happen. Crazy. Yeah. I, I just got goosebumps. Human, no other animals or mammal, mammals that have been studied can do that. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they're not out there. We still have a lot more studying to do. But from what they've studied, so researchers are just super stoked about the possibilities of this for potentially gene editing and whatnot. What can we learn from these guys? How did they evolve to do this? That's probably why they're so damn successful, Chris. Right, We're talking right. about like surviving the last extinction and whatnot. And I don't know that. I'm just totally speculating, but it, it can't hurt, right? When you, uh, the only trade-off, re- trade-off researchers say with this ability to edit RNA on the fly is that it, it does slow down their evolution. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe- That makes sense. But, that makes sense. Mm-hmm, but that, but, but I mean, I guess I'd rather have my evolution slowed down than totally stopped and- Right, right. So, sorry, I, I, I apologize for that tangent. <laughs> it's just, to me, as a physiologist, it's just incredible. And, we're, and this, this discovery was in spring of 2017 out of Stanford. Right. So, anywho's, I mean, there's, there's a lot. We'll try to, yeah, well, we'll try to link that study, mm-hmm. too. We'll yeah. Try to, yeah, you have to, we'll send that and put it on. Angie's favorite study of the year so far, basically. And when thinking about the squid, people often think of this giant legendary sea monster, which is supposedly called the Kraken. Mm-hmm. It can live off the coast of Norway or Greenland. And there's been a lot of legends about it and stories about it. And so some people have fear of, you know, perhaps these really giant squids that potentially some of the stories might be based on the fact that there are one, you know, one species of giant squid is known to be anywhere from 12 to 15 meters in length, potentially. Right. So, right. but yeah, you think of the, sometimes, sometimes people think of that octopus, like covering a whole boat and whatnot. I mean, that doesn't, ha- that doesn't happen, but right. it, I mean, you know, there's scary movies based on that, of course. And, but it, regarding the vampire squid, there's really not a lot in pop culture or um, no, a lot. No. I mean, what we know about them is just in the past 10 to 20 years from Monterey Bay mm-hmm. Aquarium and their research. But there is no such thing as a giant vampire squid. And, and <laughs> thank goodness. <laughs> Yeah, so you talk about not being giant. You're right. These guys are about a foot in length. Yeah, they're just they're tiny little guys, up, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. 30, 30 centimeters. They're not very big. And so the body's really broken up into two things. You have the mantle, which is the head. And what we think of, if you think of an octopus, the head of the octopus or the head of the squid. So that's the mantle. And that's only about six inches or 15 centimeters. And then the webbed arms are another, the other half. So you're right. And, and then earlier you talked about they have those two long arms that can extend out. So those can go a little bit longer. They go out about three feet or a meter. Yeah. So they can go out to grab mm-hmm. some things, right? Now, one of the coolest things about them, and I, and I know you probably know this, you came across this, but they have the largest eye to body size of any animal on earth. Yeah, just that camera eye and the lens and the highly, highly developed neurons involved Mm-hmm. And that is just incredible. And it's yet yeah, the largest eye known. Yeah. It's about the size of a dog's mm-hmm. for an animal that's a foot long, which is crazy. Like just, yeah, amazing. Now, one of the things, you know, I was curious about is like, okay, they're in this low oxygen zone. How do they survive compared to other fish or cephalopods or other marine animals? And they actually have very large gills to help suck out the oxygen right. that's they there. They can get more of it, better bang for their buck. Right, right. So they they just have very, very large gills to to filter the water. So then I was like, okay, well, the the, the dork in me was how do gills work? Like I really have never studied it because I've never 
taken a marine fisheries class or anything like that. So I just quickly went in there and was like, okay, how do gills work? And I'll give you the, uh, the cliff notes version, but gills are just like our lungs. And where we have like little air sacs, they actually, the, the gills are more described like radiators, you know, a lot of folds and uh, twists and turns and stuff with that, that the fish actually, or the animal marine animals force water over their gills. And then like our lungs, there is gas exchange with the water uh, through small capillaries. So the, the capillaries that, that feed to the gills actually absorb low levels of oxygen and then they disperse their carbon dioxide. So it just works just like the lungs. So it's really crazy when you look at and I'll put some of these in the show notes. But when you look at how fish gills work, you know, they just have a huge, large surface area, even though it's not like spread out. But it's if you actually look at the gill physiology, you know, they're all like these little fingers and each fingers have all these little grooves. So the water gets in those grooves and that's where you're getting this this oxygen exchange, carbon dioxide exchange. So really specially adapted uh, to that. So with vampire squid, they have huge ones. Okay. So theirs are bigger because they're going to need more surface area to get whatever little oxygen they possibly can. Right. Right. And even fish, you know, I mean, compared to the atmosphere for us is about 21% oxygen. Whereas, you know, so that that equals to about 210,000 parts per million of O2 in the water. There's only like four to eight parts per million. Right. And so these oxygen million zones is less than one. Wow. Yeah. So not very much down there. But they still work with that. Right. Right. So again, very specially adapted. Now I know you're itching to talk about this part, but the photophores is just insane, right? Oh yeah. This bio, this bio luminescence ability of these guys. So I was going to kind of let, you know, I know both of us are like, oh, I want to talk about it, but I want you to kind of summarize the work and the research that you've been doing this, this past week and a half. I'm really excited to talk about bioluminescence. It's a really rare phenomenon on land, which we've covered mostly land animals, and that's probably one of the, one of the reasons why we haven't covered it. Mm-hmm. And what bioluminescence is, say that five times fast, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> but what it is, what we'll call, what we'll, we'll call it from now on, is the production and mission of light by an animal. Okay? Right. So it's the body creating light, light, literally light. And we've seen, we see it in glowworms and some fungus, but it's actually found in about 80 to 90% of ocean organisms. Mm-hmm. So it's basically, without a doubt, the most widespread form of communication on earth. That's crazy. And that's typically what it's used for. And the vampire squid has really cool bioluminescence going on. Even though it lives in the dark, dark ocean, it needs to communicate to other vampire squid Mm -hmm. and also to predators. Mm -hmm. The vampire squid has five types of bioluminescence. Okay. The first, it happens at the base of its fins, which are on its mantle. And remember, squid have these little fins and octopus don't. The second form of bioluminescence is little small organs, which I'll talk a little bit more about, that are scattered over their whole body. Uh And the third form is just behind the eye. And just recently, this is where it gets really good, Chris. Just recently, researchers have found two more types of bioluminescence light sources from the vampire squid. The first, for your visual, is 
The tip of all eight arms, just the tip, has the ability to bioluminesce. Right. And it's this blue color, and it's gorgeous. If you look on YouTube, you can find actual video of the vampire squid, and it's eight arms, just the tips of the arm, bioluminescing a bluish color. And researchers think that's a form of communication, uh, both with potentially with uh, predators, but also potentially with other vampire squid. And then lastly, to make matters even more interesting and Mm. unique, these creatures can release a luminous fluid that so it expels like a colorless, mucusy, sticky, I just kind of think of glow-in-the-dark boogers, if you will, (laughs) from, from its arms, okay, that contains numerous molecules that can bioluminesce or produce light that form a glowing cloud around the animal. Okay. And researchers think this twinkling light mucus ball is a way and a way to confuse potential predators. Yeah. But so cool, Chris. Okay. Oh yeah. It's insane. So cool. And so I being the nerd that I am once again, probably like you at the gills, I'm like, how the heck do they do this? And, and then also through just thinking about uh, not only the bioluminescence properties of squid and fish, but then also the mm-hmm. kind of the ability to change colors and camouflage that you think of the typical right. octopus or squid being able to do. Vampire squid doesn't really do a lot of that uh, camouflaging or changing colors to match its background the way that um, a typical octopus or squid would because they don't really need to. I mean, they live in the dark, Mm -hmm. like dark, dark, dark. So they're going to use more of this bioluminescence. Right, right. So just briefly, animals have the ability to change color or mimic their background and or bioluminesce in a couple different ways. So I know all the listeners out there are asking themselves, okay, cool. It creates this blue light on its arm tips and over its body when it's, when it needs to, as a way to communicate. How yeah, you're always wondering, how do they do that? How, right? Yeah. How does it do that? So yeah. bioluminescence can be produced in a couple different ways. Some, in some animals, uh, the compounds are produced from a digestion. So from digestion of their prey. Mm-hmm. In other animals, uh, the light can be produced from a symbiotic bacteria in the organism. And But for the vampire squid, researchers are pretty sure that the bioluminescence is created from specialty cells or photocytes, so light-producing cells, that have specialized mitochondria. That's like the powerhouse of cells, gets energy. Mm-hmm. And in, in these photocytes, there's a presence of luciferin mm-hmm. or and or luciferase, which are basically proteins that can produce this light. And then the other big difference between vampire squids and other squids is that they have these mm-hmm. photophores, to, which are light-producing organs that can make disoriented flashes of light ranging from lasting fractions of a second to several minutes. Where a lot of the squids and octopus that have the camouflage ability, they have what are called chromatophores, which are light reflecting cells that contain pigment. And the vampire squid has some of these for sure, but it doesn't have as many as its shallow living squid cousins. They're cool. I mean, they are, you know, they're they're amazing. And these animals have survived for millions of years. 
and yet their behavior isn't that different, right? I mean, it's not like they're they've got some cool yeah. defenses. I don't know. Maybe you can talk yeah, about that, right? Yeah. So. Uh, their defenses are incredible. And that's what, like you said, that's probably mm-hmm. one of the reasons why they've done so well for so long. And part of that is their ability to bioluminesce. They think that that is a defense um, because unlike typical mm-hmm. squid, their shallow, shallow water cousins or whatever, that they'll produce ink to scare mm-hmm. away predators, right? Right. But vampire squid, I mean, there's really no need to produce ink when it's super dark because that's not going to help. Uh, ward off predators. They've evolved this ability to bioluminesce and basically do a fireworks display that with writhing arms and erratic movements. And then of course, this bioluminesce blue boogery gooey stuff. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So that's, you know, that's a great adaptation. Uh, But also to display the large spines that line the underside of their arms. And this looks really mm-hmm. intimidating to predators, let alone if there's blue lights flashing and blue boogers flying at you. And so it just, it makes them look tough, but they're harmless. They don't do anything with these spines. Right, right. And this is what's called the pineapple posture. This where they bring their, they bring their webbed arms up over their head. And so with the spikes, I guess they researchers say they look like a little bit of a pineapple, which I think is a cute term because they don't, they're not really even that scary. No. Lastly, researchers think that vampire squids are sometimes reduced to defending itself by biting off their own arm tip. They use this as a sacrifice of their tip of their arm to float off into the deep, dark depths of the ocean, sparkling with its blue luminescence to lure away the enemy. Hmm. So putting all these defenses together, you kind of have one tough cookie that's really working hard to stay alive, but in the end, not that scary. <laughs> almost almost pretty, if you will, right? Well, wait till, wait till you get to their nutrition. Now, why do you think they call them vampires? Because they jump out of the water and suck the blood of people, right? That's... Was my first assumption. (laughs) (laughs) You think that these things like suck whales' blood or something? Yeah. No, they don't. They don't eat blood, as their name implies. They uh, rather just feed on this drifting marine snow that is falling down. So there's some organic matter there that they they feed on. Right. So just so listeners know, the marine snow is detritus uh, from the levels of the ocean up above little pieces of fish and shrimp and zooplankton and feces and animal (laughs) body chunks, (laughs) really yummy stuff, but it's like a snow. Yeah. And they eat it. That's the, they eat it. That's that's, (laughs) yes. My word of the day for nutrition is they're called a detritivore. Right. Right. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but they eat detritus. Right. Marine snow. Yeah. Yeah. It's really crazy. And, you know, now uh, they have pr- produced some studies have shown that when they do catch these ones and then they open up their stomachs, they did find small jellyfish, mm-hmm. some other crustaceans, prawns, diatoms or microalgae, and then plankton. Mm-hmm. Right. So they do eat they do eat other things. Now, what's interesting about these guys, too, is, you know, in their defense, they don't speed away. Like you think of squid or an octopus like zooming away. They don't. They're slow. Mm-hmm. They have a very slow metabolic rate, so they don't have the ability to swim really, really fast. Instead, they just do all these defenses we talked about. Now, vampire squid, conversely, are a food source for sperm whales. 
some bottlenose whales, seals and sea lions, and then of course larger mm-hmm. fish. So that that's who's who's kind of preying on them a little bit. They don't really, you know, they're not, they're not a type of animal that is kind of like a leech or something like that. They actually are kind of like a cleanup crew. Again, another unique niche in the oceans. The vampire squid are just floating around, minding their own business. And right. then in order to eat their food, this marine snow, they have, in addition to their four arm pairs or their eight arms, they have a pair of highly extendable and contractible tentacles that allow them to grab their prey and then put it in their mouth or mm-hmm. in the vampire squid case, grab the marine s- snow and kind of wad it into a ball and then consume it from there. So not scary at all. Really. Yeah. yeah, They're not, they're not. Now I'm curious, Angie, because not an easy animal to study, especially you're talking about using these, these remote vehicles. How do we know that even anything about reproduction with them? Well, Chris, you bring up a very, very good point uh, that we, we don't know a lot about, uh, the vampire squid reproduction. Uh, we do know that, interestingly enough, in most squid species, a lot of priority is given to reproduction when it's that time in their life cycle. In fact, it's to the point where it, they'll actually shrink their stomach and their cecum in their latest stages of their life to make room for the reproductive organs to do what they need to do. Like most deep sea organisms, it's really difficult to study these guys in their natural environment. We do know that squid reproduce sexually. We don't think that there's a breeding season for vampire squids. With other species of squid, Mm. depending on the species and the location of where they live, there can be a breeding season. And then squid in general, males are typically bigger than females, and that's called sexual dimorphism. And typically, Chris, this is interesting and saddish, if you will, but in most squid and octopus, after they breed, they die. Their life cycle's over. Right. Interestingly enough, in the vampire squid, a study just as recently as 2015 has shown that female vampire squid, after they spawn their eggs, will then, instead of dying, will return to a reproductive state again at a later date. Right, create right. a new batch of eggs. And this can happen maybe even up to 20 times, which is just incredible because it's never been documented in other species of squid. And so perhaps reasons for this is that if you think about it, in this dark, deep ocean where they're just floating around, mind their own business with the horrible name of vampire squid, just eating their, yeah. eating their marine snow, being super cute, um, encounters of males and females are going to be kind of rare. Right. And so when the mating process does take place, the male can store sperm inside the female, which will then fertilize her eggs internally. Okay. Mm-hmm. And researchers think with a vampire squid that they will have a smaller clutch than a typical squid species with larger eggs. Mm-hmm. And for those squids that do reproduce the good old fashioned way, Those guys are some of the most well-endowed animals on earth. Okay, Chris? (laughs) (laughs) So so basically they make you run away. Like, oh my Um, God. Yes, yes, yes. They make you run very, very far away. Uh, They are... They are only second to barnacles. Oh, wow. But barnacles are super small. So for some reason that, that visual doesn't seem so scary. But if you think of a giant squid and then you do the math from there... Um, some of these, uh, some of these squid can have basically penises that are the length of their body. 
Oh God. <laughs> so it is kind of like another arm, if you will, like a, and like an eighth arm or whatnot. Once again, Squid have very many adaptations and even in their reproductive organs. So keep that in mind the next time <laughs> yeah. you're thinking Swimming. about eating about eating squid. Yeah. Um, but no, and just briefly, the lifespan of vampire squid researchers, uh, they don't really know, but they think it's probably between three and eight years. When the offspring are hatched, they are on their own. They have to fend for themselves. And vampire squids, the babies are going to be about eight millimeters in length, and they are cute. They're like little well-developed miniatures of the adult, and they with a few differences, and they, they swim a lot more when they're little. And as they progress to mature adults, and they stop swimming, and they do more of this floating around just hanging out because they have such a, a low metabolic rate. Right. And, you know, you got me thinking, too, when you're talking about reproduction and you know, the perfect environment and the change in ocean chemistry. And I know, you know, we were talking about, you know, conservation and really we like to focus on endangered species. We don't know how many vampire squid there are because you can't really go and count them and do all these surveys that would just cost way too much money. So they're not classified yes. by the IUCN. No. They haven't evaluated them. They're, they just right. live so deeply and feed so deeply We'd have no idea how many there are, or there could be two left. There could be 200 million, which probably not even close, but you know, there's probably a, a healthy, somewhat healthy population in there, but there's a couple things working against them. Sure. As m- most marine animals are going to have issues right. with ocean warming, decreased oxygen, which would be even worse for these guys because they already live in the right. oxygen zone, pollution, overfishing, industrialization, commercial right. fishing, so. Yeah, the two the two ones I really wanted to hit upon was was first it's it's I don't know some people might be aware of it ocean acidification and I was thinking about these guys and at some point you know we'll talk about corals and coral reefs because they're that's really where marine scientists are just crying they're so scared of what's going on with the coral reefs they're just they're you know we we kind of alluded to it in the previous pod but they're disappearing. Yes, away. that's a whole nother pod that we'll have to do on a different day because our oceans are in crisis. Scientists know acidification is having a huge impact on these species. So then when shelled organisms are at risk, again, we talk about these food webs, the entire food web's at risk. and They're collapsing. Right. And a billion plus people depend on seafood. I love seafood. Mm-hmm. I do too, but it... And being in the United States, it's not the staple of our diets, but many cultures, the oceans are their their life. Of course, mm-hmm. yeah, that collapsing, that you know, and even in the United States, there's there's tons of jobs. The economy, I don't know how many billions of dollars it's pumped into the economy. So when our oceans aren't healthy, it's going to have a huge impact, you know, socially, of course. Oh, worldwide. It's trickle up hill for sure, and and that leads right. leads me into my organizations of the week. I picked two. And I typically, of course, like to pick at least one that really specializes on the animal that we're discussing that week. Right. But as you had mentioned before, there is no real conservation groups for the vampire squid because we don't know a lot about them. So my organizations this week are focusing more on ocean and ocean health and ocean research. Okay. And so- First organization that I want to focus on this week is Oceana, and that's O-C-E-A-N-A, 
org. This is a group mm -hmm. whose major campaign is to protect and restore the world's oceans, what we've just been talking about. And I really like their multidisciplinary approach of using a team of scientists, marine scientists, and then economists and lawyers to advocate for policy changes to reduce pollution and to prevent the collapse of fish populations and marine wildlife and sea life in general. And they're an international group in America and Europe, uh, South America, and they're really working on solutions, right? I always like people in organizations that focus on solutions to look at overfishing and then how do we go about doing fishing sustainably and, and or properly managing fisheries. The big one is ocean pollution. And they use this multidisciplinary approach with scientific ex experts to use fact-based evidence, okay? So they're really hardcore on the science and I enjoy that. And the other thing too with Oceana is, I mean, who am I? I'm, I'm just Angie, the, the, <laughs> the podcaster. But this group has been around since 2001. And I mean, they, it's, they are part of the Pew Charitable Trust the Foundation, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and they have more than 200 victories and protected more than 3.5 million square miles of ocean. Wow. That, that's a lot, right? Yeah. And once again, and once again, don't, don't believe me. You can believe Sting or Barbara Streisand or Morgan Freeman or Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones. They all support this group. So they're definitely out there making waves. <laughs> Pardon oh, me. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, and then <laughs> secondly, sorry, I'm getting a little slap happy here. Yeah, you are. Uh, the second group is Marine Bio, and they can be found at www.marinebio.org. And this is a cool group because this is a conservation society that's nonprofit and, volu and volunteer-based. And they work to actually do science education online about the world's oceans and marine life and marine conservation and sea ethics and their mission is to share the wonders of the ocean that will help communicate science, conservation, education, and research, and basically bring about awareness. They have all these forums for marine scientists and conservation organizations and others interested, including myself, and, right. and marine animals and marine conservation. Yeah, that kind of leads me into the conservation tip of the week. And researching some of this stuff, you know, in the ocean health and things like that. And I found a good infographic that I will definitely put up from Ocean Conservancy talking about all the plastics in the ocean. So just quickly, some numbers. Human population right now is producing about two and a half billion metric tons of solid waste mm. per year it's all incredible. around the world. So that's, yeah, humans. Then within that, 275 million metric tons is plastic. So we have about 2 billion people living within 30 miles of the coastlines around the world that produce 100 million metric tons of coastal plastic waste. Every year, 8 million metric tons of plastic goes into the Pacific Ocean. Wow. Or goes into the oceans. Ugh. Not just the Pacific That's Ocean. Incredible. But, uh, yeah, 8 million. So you take 2.5 billion of metric tons, you know, that, that 8 
million is very minuscule of that, but it still is going into the oceans mm -hmm. and it's accumulating. So we now we know we have this great Pacific garbage patch, which is the size of Mexico. Oh yeah, Chris, there, there's remote islands that are so remote and so far, I forget the names of them, but so far away from anything living in there and they in just piles of plastic have washed up on the beaches. Yeah. Yeah, I just saw a thing on Midway Island. I, you know, like you said, I'm a, a history war buff, and that was a big battle in World War II. You go into Midway Island. I just saw this two days ago, videos of birds, and it's just plastic everywhere so. that's just washed up on the shore. So that leads me into conservation tip of the week, and I think we all need to reduce our use of plastics. I have started when I go to the grocery store. I know it's impossible not to buy plastic or certain things that are plastic, but I am making conscious decisions on reducing my plastic waste. So I no longer buy drinks and small water, plastic water bottles. I try to buy boxes and things like that. It's very hard to do. It's, I can't say reduce plastic 100%, but if we can cut down on the amount of plastic, that will force, again, voting with our dollar, that will force these companies to rethink packaging and finding something that's more sustainable. And then obviously try to recycle all your plastic buy reusable water bottles. I know Angie and I have said that before. So again, I think between acidification and the plastics, and I think of that marine snow drifting down with these vampire squid, how much of that is plastic that they're eating? You know, what is that doing to their physiology, their digestive systems, their survival? You know, it's probably having a huge impact on, on their physiology. Yeah, on the show notes, we can put ways, tips, hints, ideas, things that we use to reduce plastic I started buying my laundry detergent in a box again instead of in a plastic right. uh, tub. I grew up with it in a cardboard box, and that's how I'm buying it now. I'm voting with my dollar. I am making my own dish soap because I blow through dish soap like a hurricane. I don't know Crazy. why. I just use a lot of product. And so it's super. it's really easy to do it yourself. A lot of these things, a lot of these products, you can do it yourself at home. So- just little tips to, to keep you, to keep the listeners motivated. And it's not a one fix all solution uh, at all. Uh, I just heard the other day that uh, no. San Francisco is banning plastic bags. So that's wonderful. Steps in the right direction. And hopefully we'll all get on board with that here in Florida and, and other places. Yeah. I mean, but it's just, it's incredible that, you know, we are having an impact, you know, it, it, we can't stick our heads in the sand. Anyways, for us this week, if you could post this episode or any of your favorite episodes that you've had so far on social media and just ask somebody to subscribe and listen to the podcast. If each of you can do that for me and Angie, we will give you a huge hug and thank you from the bottom <laughs> of our hearts. That will help us continue to grow this audience. Who doesn't like a good hug, right? <laughs> I know, I know, but we are, you know, the feedback's been phenomenal. Some bear with us as we make this transition with our, our technical abilities are getting better. And you know, we just want to thank you so much for, for sticking with us. And we look forward to bringing you a new species next week. Yes. Thank you for listening. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. 